0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 26, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has now, for decades, affirmed that qualified immunity for police is the order of the day, thus protecting police officers from virtually any civil liability for misconduct. In two recent cases, however, it appears the court is willing to begin the process of drawing at least one line. Cato's Jay Schweikert and Clark Neely comment. Jay, why don't you start us off here? What is so surprising about this case uh, relating to qualified immunity?
1: So, on Monday, February 22nd, um, the Supreme Court issued an order uh, in a case, uh, McCoy uh, versus Alamu, uh, which was an appeal from a Fifth Circuit decision. Um, And what is really surprising about this order is that the Supreme Court uh, vacated the Fifth Circuit's decision, which granted qualified immunity uh, to a prison guard who was alleged to have essentially pepper sprayed an inmate for no reason whatsoever. Um, and the Supreme Court um vacated and remanded this decision in light of the Taylor versus Riojas decision, which the Supreme Court issued last November, which was another decision, that time accompanied by a brief opinion, that uh, re- uh, vacated and re- and remanded a Fifth Circuit decision granting immunity. So basically twice in short order now, the Supreme Court has reversed um, or rather vacated and remanded a lower court opinion granting qualified immunity, um, which is a complete uh, dramatic change of pace from what the Supreme Court has done over the last you know several decades, where they are almost always uh, reversing lower courts that deny immunity. Um So it's this 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 order wasn't accompanied by an opinion, but just the mere fact that the Supreme Court now has, uh, you know, twice, um, sent a message to lower courts to be a little bit more reluctant to grant immunity is itself a huge change of pace.
0: Clark, detail for us this case of Taylor v. Riojas. This was a case that dealt with the conditions that a prisoner was subjected to while. Under confinement, and uh, it should be noted, this was a seven to one opinion of the court.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the takeaway for people to understand is how horrific the conduct was in both cases. So, in the earlier case, Taylor v. Riojas, the allegation was that Texas prison officials locked a prisoner up in what amounts to an open sewer for six days. Every horizontal surface was covered with human feces. The the faucet was packed with human feces, and the Fifth Circuit in that case in essence, said, well, of course, uh, we know you're not supposed to do that, but uh, we don't have a decision exactly on point. So the right not to be held in an open sewer for nearly a week just isn't clearly established in the Fifth Circuit. In the more recent case, the McCoy case, you have a situation where a frustrated prison guard, according to Mr. McCoy's version of facts, frustrated prison guard is mad at one prisoner, but doesn't have access to him because that prisoner has managed to put some bedding uh, up across the bars of his cage. So The guard simply goes to the next cell and gratuitously sprays chemical agent in the eyes of an innocent prisoner who did nothing more than just observe what happened. And once again, the Fifth Circuit holds that while that is certainly uh, an Eighth Amendment violation, that is certainly a violation of the prisoner's right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment, we just don't happen to have a case involving pepper spray. Yeah, we've got one with tasers, we've got one with batons and fists, but we just don't happen to have one with pepper spray in particular. Uh, what the Supreme Court seems to be communicating to the lower courts with the summary reversals um, in McCoy and earlier in Taylor v. Riojas is, in a set, in essence, come on, knock it off. the The qualified immunity doctrine, in its its original rationale, was supposedly to protect government officials who act in good faith. In borderline cases, neither of these cases were remotely borderline cases, and I, you know. Obviously, you have to be careful about reading much into the Supreme Court uh, and what it's communicating. But it seems to me that one message you could divide, uh, take from this um, is that the qualified immunity doctrine should not be essentially a game of judicial whack-a-mole, where the the goal of the lower court is to see if there is some way they can bend over backwards to let the government official off the hook. Who knows if the lower courts will will interpret it that way, but they ought to.
0: So, to expand a little bit upon the come on. Uh, emanating from the court in Taylor v. Riojas, it was essentially that a correctional officer should have realized that uh, the conditions under which this person was being kept violated the Eighth Amendment, and that if if they should have known that, if it's clear to the Supreme Court, then we're not interested in uh, accepting. Your judgment, lower court judgment—that's a
2: fair assessment. It's—it's—it's a reminder. It seems to me that at least in theory, the qualified immunity doctrine exists in order to protect government officials from being held civilly liable when their conduct is at least arguably permissible or at least arguably defensible. What's happened, though, is that as the the doctrine, which is what we call it when courts actually interpret these rules and, and build them out in a series of cases, the way the doctrine has evolved is it really has become extraordinarily formalistic to the point where that really doesn't seem to be the touchstone anymore. In other words, the sort of the equities of the case don't really seem to matter anymore. And it really is just a game of, hey, is there a case exactly on point? If yes, then maybe the case can go forward. If no, then we toss the case out what we are hoping is that lower court judges will interpret this as a strong message from the Supreme Court to stop treating qualified immunity um, in that manner and to go back to its stated rationale.
0: Uh, Jay, if I understand uh, both of you correctly, and the import of these two cases, uh, if I'm a lower court judge and I'm I'm looking at the the opinions offered in these cases, in in one case, no opinion, just. Remanded and just saying, hey, take a look at this other case we decided that is substantially similar,
1: at least in a way. Um, what should be my takeaway? So I think the clear takeaway for lower courts is that under the clearly established law standard, uh, which is the standard that governs qualified immunity today, that does not require a plaintiff to find a case with identical facts. And even though the Supreme Court has always Purported to say that that is not a requirement. In recent years, as a practical matter, that is what the the test has turned into, and that I think is a fair description of the Fifth Circuit opinions in both uh, the Taylor and McCoy cases. Um, so you don't need a case with identical facts. I I think that still leaves, frankly, a lot of ambiguity on exactly. How to apply the clearly established law standard? Because you could say something like, "Well, the the real question is, should it have been obvious to any reasonable officer that this action was unconstitutional?" And that sounds fine in the abstract, but it's a very still a very amorphous, uh, ambiguous standard to apply. Um, so while I think it's good that the Supreme Court is cutting is, is appears to be cutting back on the worst excesses of the qualified immunity doctrine. This is by no means a fix to qualified immunity because it still leaves a gap between where someone's rights were violated, but where a judge determines that, okay, yes, this was unlawful, but, you know, it wasn't sufficiently obvious that it was unlawful. Um, And it leaves parties without a clear way of predicting how courts are going to resolve that, because what's obvious to one judge uh, may not be obvious to another. So. The the Supreme Court, the way I think about it is over the last three decades, the Supreme Court has slowly but surely ratcheted up how difficult it is to meet the clearly established law standard. They may now be ratcheting it down slightly, but we are still left with this inherently amorphous and, in my view, still fundamentally unjust uh, state of affairs where someone's rights can be violated and they're left without a remedy. So it's better than nothing. But it is not a fix to the problem, Clark. Is this a crack
0: in a door that has up till now remained closed?
2: I don't think we can say for sure uh, because it so much turns on how lower court judges respond to the 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 two orders from the Supreme Court in Taylor and in McCoy. The optimistic side of me wants to say they will get the message. The more pessimistic side of me says that there is so much inertia already in the lower courts they are so inclined to let uh, law enforcement officials and other government officials off the hook that it will be very difficult for them to essentially you know break character on that uh, and jay's exactly right uh, these orders are um, I would say important and and hopeful, but they are absolutely far far short of a true fix and just to briefly add to that, I
1: think what's worth keeping in mind right is that Last year, there was this real question about whether the Supreme Court would be reconsidering qualified immunity entirely. Uh, And there were lots of petitions raising exactly that question. Um, And we thought and we had several podcasts and we were pretty optimistic about the court uh, taking up one of those cases, but they denied all of them last June. Then in Taylor, which really was the last one of these cert petitions raising the question, should qualified immunity be reconsidered? The court issued its summary reversal, but it didn't take up that larger question of reconsidering the doctrine. So while, again, it's dangerous to read too much into this, my interpretation of that is the justice is pretty clearly saying, we realize this has gotten out of hand. We are not going to reconsider it, but we'll try to dial it back a little. So like I said, it's encouraging in the sense that maybe lower court judges will be a little bit less ridiculous in how they apply it. But it also is somewhat discouraging because I think it reflects the Supreme Court is probably not willing to take up any large-scale doctrinal changes, which means further changes to qualified immunity are going to have to be done legislatively, probably not through the courts. Clark, Jay has given us a
0: little bit of hope. Go ahead and dash that hope if you could.
2: Well, you know, I'm not here to dash the hope, but I certainly think that we should be uh, mindful of just how horrible things are. Uh, in the lower courts, and just the extraordinary damage that the Supreme Court has done to public confidence uh, in law enforcement uh, by, by in effect, coddling law enforcement and communicating to the public what a low opinion the justices seem to have um, of of police and, and other members of law enforcement, and just how little we can expect from them. So to, to just take one example. The uh, Fifth Circuit, the same court we've been talking about during this podcast just two weeks ago, uh, handed down a decision in which they granted Uh, qualified immunity and dismissed a case against uh, several police officers who had responded to um, a mental health call. Uh, When they got to the home, uh, a man was in his bedroom and he was holding a gasoline can. He ended up splashing some of the gasoline on himself. He was not following commands from the police officers. Um, Two of them drew their tasers and the third police officer said, wait a minute, if we fire a taser at him, we are probably going to light him on fire. They did it anyway. They did light him on fire. They burned down the house and ended up killing the victim, the man who was having a mental health incident. The Fifth Circuit held that that wasn't even a Fourth Amendment violation because they essentially sort of threw up their hands and said, well, what what could they have done? And of course, the answer is very simple. What they could have done, what they should have done was simply pull back out of the room, get everybody out of the house and try to talk him out of the house. The last thing, of course, that you do is set a person on fire when you know that shooting a taser at them is likely to do that. Unfortunately, that ruling Granting qualified immunity, dismissing the case against those officers, is much more in keeping with modern qualified immunity doctrine than this ray of hope that we've seen from the Supreme Court in these two recent orders. Probably, things will continue to be more like this Ramirez case involving the tasers and the and the man with the gasoline than um, than what we have, you know, could hope for with the um, uh, the Taylor and McCoy cases. So again. The legislature has got to step in and fix this because it's pretty clear that the courts are not going to do it by themselves.
0: Clark Neely is Cato's vice president for criminal justice. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. And now a thank you to a Cato podcast sponsor, James Gettler. Thank you for your support of the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. Supporters like you make it possible for us to pursue a public policy rooted in individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. (laughs) Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.